you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew 26. I said earlier that we call this week Passion Week in the church calendar. And that relates to God's passion in general. And passion need not be only a sad thing. We probably mostly think of passion as a quite happy thing. But it often does in this week mean a heavy thing. We are to see the passion of Jesus and to see his anguish. What better place to see his anguish than in the garden on the night that he was betrayed? Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, this passage of dark Gethsemane begins and is filled with trouble. Trouble. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to the disciples, his soul is very sorrowful even unto death. He fell on his face and he prayed. Now this is not the first time that Jesus has slipped away for stillness and solitude. It's not the first time that he's taken Peter, James, and John to do it with him. It's not the only time that Jesus was troubled or heavy in spirit or grieved. It's certainly not the only time that he's prayed to his father. These things have all happened multiple times in the gospel accounts. But here, this is different. Matthew means to show us that this is different. This moment of Gethsemane is unlike anything before it, in no small part because of a growing crescendo in Matthew's telling of the Jesus story. Look back to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verse 21. Here's Matthew laying out from Jesus' own words this growing snowball, getting larger, picking up speed. Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day, 
be killed and on the third day be raised. Look at Matthew 17. In verse 22, he said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. And the disciples, they were greatly distressed. Look at Matthew 20, verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, remember that's where he's going to be crucified. He took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he'll be raised on the third day. Now just skip ahead to our chapter, chapter 26, or chapter for tonight. Look at the beginning of it. Verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days, the Passover is coming. And then the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. You can just look down and glance in your Bibles. A few verses later, a woman barges into a dinner party. And she worships Jesus by anointing him with expensive perfumed oil. And the disciples roll their eyes, they shake their heads, because this very expensive perfume, they said, could have been sold, and the money is given to the poor. But Jesus says in verse 12, In pouring this ointment on my body, she's done it to prepare me for burial. Then Matthew tells us what's going on elsewhere. Judas is seeing how much he can get to turn Jesus in. Then there's the Passover. The Passover celebrated together with the disciples, their final meal. And here, verses 20 to 25 or so, Jesus foretells of his imminent betrayal. He also teaches them about the Lord's Supper. He also tells them that this is his last meal, verse 29. He also tells the disciples that they will all fall away that night, verse 31. The shepherd's going to be struck, and when the shepherd's struck, the sheep are going to scatter. He also tells Peter, verses 34 and 35, that Peter will deny his Lord. Though Peter denies it here vehemently, as do all the disciples who profess that they will stand with Jesus even unto death. Then they go to the garden. Then Jesus prays. It's then that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. It's then that Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. It's there that he fell on his face and prayed. Or as the writer of Hebrews comments on this very same story, chapter 5, verse 27, there Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. They slept. They slept during all this. Not our Savior. In this troublesome time, our Savior prayed. He prayed. He prayed in three different rounds, you could say. He checks on the disciples, then he goes back to pray. He checks on the disciples, then he goes back to pray. 
These apparently were not short prayers. What Matthew is giving us in just one sentence is a very abbreviated version of what Jesus must have been praying. According to Mark's account of the same story, after Jesus finds the disciples sleeping, he says, Could you not watch one hour? A whole hour in one of these rounds of prayer. So it could, this could be three hours of praying. One hour each round. This also shows us Jesus' anguish. In Luke's account, Luke 22, we now, those now famous words, where Luke tells us that Jesus, his sweat, it became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. He prayed in such an anguished way that it was either blood that flowed out of his pores. Some commentators insist that this should be taken literally. And they point to the medical evidence that this can actually happen when someone is in great distress. Or other scholars say that this isn't meant as a literal thing. It's a saying. It's a simile. His anguish and his sweat were so great that it was like bleeding. It's like being torn from the inside out. But regardless of whatever's happening physiologically, the point is obvious. The point is that Jesus is in a remarkable and unusual kind of anguish in his prayer. And why is he in such anguish? Why is he praying like this? Well, we have to think about what's coming. right? His arrest, the betrayal, the trial, the beatings, the mockery, and of course that cruel crucifixion. But it's not the shame... And it's not the physical pain. It's not even the physical pain of the cross that has Jesus in such physical and soul-agonizing prayer. Jesus is agonizing and praying like this because there's a cosmic and spiritual experience that he's about to face and even is now beginning to face. He is going to bear sin. The cross, yes, is death. But, you know, in Braveheart, Mel Gibson faces death a little more bravely than Jesus might hear in the garden. If Jesus in the garden is weeping and crying and sweating as though drops of blood because he's afraid of the pain of the cross, well, we could say Jesus wasn't our best martyr. Some went more boldly than him. And we dare not say that. It's not the physical pain of the cross that has Jesus so concerned. It's that he will bear sin. It's that he will bear the punishment for sin. It's that he will bear the separation from the Father that our sins deserved. That's the anguish. And the anguish that we could never possibly understand because we've never had the unity with the Father that, the G- that Jesus had in eternity's past. The key for this prayer, the key for the anguish is the cup. The cup. That's the content of Jesus' prayer. He says, Father, if it be possible, verse 39, let this cup pass from me. The cup isn't just any old cup, and the cup isn't a symbol for the cross. The cup is a rich symbolic term. A frequent picture of God's judgment in the Old Testament. Like in Psalm 75. 
where it says, For in the hand of the Lord there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. A cup of God's wrath. Like in Isaiah 51. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who've drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk it to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Or one more, Ezekiel 23. It's a cup of horror and desolation, and you shall drink it and drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breasts. The cup in the Old Testament oftentimes is the symbol of all of God's holy hatred and justice toward sin. That's what Jesus is facing. That's what the cross is. Not just pain, but sin-bearing, wrath-bearing, and being forsaken. And in the garden, he's beginning to get the first sip of the cup. And it's bitter. But it's just the first sip. Maybe it's not even a sip. Maybe it's fairer to say that his nose is over the the rim of the cup. And at the first sniff, he trembles. He knows it's going to get way worse. To drink the cup to its dregs means that he will bear the full weight of the sins of a people which no man can number. Not just one sin per person or one payment per person in a sense, but all the sins of each person. He'll bear not just God's displeasure, but God's punishment. He'll bear not just God's punishment, but God's displeasure. That's wrath. He'll be cut off. An Old Testament word for judgment. And that's what he's asking the Father, if there be any other way. Is there any other way? And what's the response? Silence. Silence. Three times, perhaps three different rounds of times, who knows how many requests in each round, Jesus prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again in verse 42, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, Matthew tells us in verse 44, Three times he asked, three times there was silence. No answer. Why did he pray this way? Why did Jesus do this? Didn't he know the answer? Why is this in our Bibles? Well, there are all kinds of questions like that that we could ask and for which we don't have sufficient answers. This is a perplexing passage that scratches the surface of the inner-Trinitarian relationship raises questions about God's omniscience and Jesus' omniscience specifically. 
whether the plan can change, all these kinds of things. Some of these questions are not answerable by us human beings now, but there are several things that we can say about why this is in our Bibles. It shows us Jesus' true humanity. It shows us that he was tempted. It shows us that he wrestled. It shows us the terror of what's ahead for him. And not just the pain of the cross, the physical pain, but the soul pain that's coming and being forsaken by the Father. Hence, it shows us something of what we've been saved from. I mean, the cross shows us something of the suffering, the external physiological suffering that we've been saved from. Hell shows us something of what we've been saved from. But Jesus' heart here shows us something of what we've been saved from. We see here true temptation and real obedience. You know, we could say in one way, Gethsemane is in our Bibles because Hebrews 5 is also in our Bibles. There where it says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now that raises more questions than it answers in some ways. What does it mean he learned obedience? Well, I don't know fully, but it means he learned obedience somehow. He was fully obedient and yet... Yet he was learning obedience as our example and as our model, our, our obedience, our righteousness. He was tempted in every way, but without sin, Hebrews 4 says. And really the biggest reason I think this is in our Bibles, this prayer in Gethsemane, is because it shows us that there was no other way. If we didn't have this prayer from Jesus in silence from the Father, we might wonder, could there have been another way? Could there be a way in which we're justified and God is just? Is there another way? There's no other way. The silence from the Father shows us that so clearly. Jesus in the garden is like a reverse image of that story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. I referenced it on Sunday. There, Abraham finally gets his promised son Isaac. And in no short time, it seems, God has uh, told him to sacrifice this promised son. They walk to the place of the sacrifice. Abraham says those faith-filled words that God will provide himself a lamb. The altar's built. His son is tied up. The knife is raised over his son. And God provides an alternative. God provides a substitute. But in the garden, Jesus asked, Is there any other way than this? And there is no ram in the thicket behind him. There's silence. Not just silence, but he's alone in every other way. He's alone. Two times Jesus returns to his men to find them asleep. Just read it again with me. Verse 40. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Just after he said, oh, Father, 
if there be another way, let this cup pass for me. Just after he said, not as I will, but as you will. Right after, he comes and he finds them sleeping. He says to Peter, specifically, bold Peter, who just said a few verses earlier, even if you die, I will die with you. I will never deny you. He says to that Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 43, again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. Verse 45, then he came to the disciples and said to them, wake up, idiots. (laughs) Something like that. Now, it's somewhat understandable that they were sleeping, isn't it? Matthew told us their eyes were heavy. We've all been tired. You've all been driving in the middle of the night and your eyes bounce. And like a, like a beach ball, they bounce less every time. Right? It's been a really long day for these guys. The conversation has been rather heavy. Let's just say that. It's been a little stressful. Jesus seems a little on edge. They've just had this nice, quiet, private meal by themselves, let their guard down maybe. Bellies are full. We all know what that's like. Fatigue plus food plus prayer equals (laughs) no prayer. Right? I remember my first staff retreat. I worked at a church when I was in seminary. First staff retreat. I was all excited. Six guys or so and First night, we're going to pray. I fell asleep and snored so loud, and they got teased for it, right? I I know about this. This is understandable in some ways. But on the other hand, this is so absurd that the disciples sleep. They're with Jesus. Jesus has set this up so thoroughly that it's ghastly that that he would ask them to pray alongside him, near him, and they would doze off like golf is on the TV? Remember all of his warnings about the snowball rolling and growing and picking up speed? Remember how he said that they would all scatter that night? Remember how they all vowed, not us. Remember how he told Peter, you'll betray me tonight. Remember how he said there'd be one here who would, deny, who would betray him and Peter would deny him. Remember how he told them with exponential frequency how and when he'd be crucified. He even gave time markers. Tonight, in two days, my last meal. Remember how he told them as they entered the garden that his soul was sorrowful unto death. And he prayed loudly. We're told that another account, it was just a stone's throw away that Jesus was away from the three. He prayed loudly, loud cries. And they slept. You can't pray? You can't stay awake now? You're not with me in this? Is the flesh that weak? And Jesus comes back to them. He finds them sleeping. He rebukes them. 
He exhorts them again. He pleads with them. You think, surely then, you've been caught. Guilt filling your stomach. Adrenaline would kick in. You'd pray. I mean, Jesus busted you. You weren't praying. You were sleeping. He said, pray, not sleep. You'd think then they would prop their eyelids up with toothpicks. They'd slap each other. They'd do some sprints. But no. Jesus goes again and prays. And again and comes back and finds that he's been praying alone. Alone. How appalling. How short-sighted. How selfish. And you and I would have done no better. You and I would have done no better. If you and I were there, we would have said, shove over to the disciples, pulled up a rock, laid down. When Jesus came and caught us sleeping, we would have said, oh, oh, sorry. And then we would have turned the rock over to the cooler side. You and I would have done no better. We too would have left him and fled, like it says in verse 56, the end of the story. Just like he promised they would, they did. Just like them, we would too. He's all alone. And he knew it would be that way. Why? Well, because only he can bear the cup. This is his to do. It's fitting that the disciples... Hang him out to dry, in a sense. It's fitting that the disciples are not good wingmen. Jesus doesn't need them. We're not good ones anyway. How ironic. He's bearing the disciples' sins, and they're asleep. How ironic that he's the only one who can take away sin, and he's the only one who doesn't have any sin. What amazing love. Samuel Reed in 1912 wrote this. Oh, what wondrous love I see, freely shown for you and me by the one who did atone just to show his matchless grace. Jesus suffered for the race in Gethsemane, Gethsemane alone. Tarry here, he told the three. Tarry here and watch for me. But they heard no bitter moan, for the three disciples slept while my loving Savior wept in Gethsemane alone. Long in anguish deep was he, weeping there for you and me, for our sin to him was known. We should love him evermore for the anguish that he bore in Gethsemane alone. Oh, what love, matchless love. Oh, what love for me was shown. His forever I will be for the love he gave to me when he suffered all alone. He surrendered. The suffering begins with this surrender. In verse 46, he says, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is just surrender. Judas is about to show up. He's bringing guards with him. That's what verses 47 and following are all about, surrender. They come with clubs and swords. They they come as a mob. Jesus says, 
Are you kidding? I'm in town every day. Haven't you seen me? I teach around here all the time. You came with clubs and, and, and swords? He's surrendering. Surrendering to his father's will. Surrendering to Judas. And that sneaky, sick kiss. Surrendering to a big crowd with swords and clubs. Surrendering to the high priest's guards. Not fighting against them like... Uh, like bold but dumb Peter lopping off the ear of one of the guards. Peter, don't you realize I could call down legions of angels right now? I don't need your sword. Thanks, though. That's cute. <laughs> Silly captors, swords, clubs. Hey, look, I got fire. <laughs> He's the king. With a word, you're obliterated. He surrenders. Because he has to fulfill scripture. He says in verse 56, All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. He surrenders himself for our redemption. That's what prophecy told. He surrenders himself for our sins. For our punishment. He surrenders himself to the Father's holy wrath. He surrenders himself to being forsaken for us. You know, really what this is, is Garden 2.0. The Garden of Gethsemane should remind us of another garden. Another garden of testing. Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve there essentially said... Our will, not yours, be done. But Jesus said, my will, not. Not my will, but yours be done. He righteously obeyed. This is Garden 2.0, so much better than the first garden. The garden's what led a whole humanity into trouble. Garden 2.0 begins a new story, a new humanity. Garden 2.0 means that we have a new representative. Read Romans 5, which just flushes this out for more than a dozen verses. Adam represented one humanity. Jesus represents a whole new humanity. Garden 2.0 means that Jesus is our substitute. He was bearing sin, beginning to bear sin, beginning to be forsaken there in the garden, he was beginning to sip the cup that he would drink to its dregs later on. As Isaiah prophesied, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. For us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned, every one of us, we've turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He poured out his soul to death. He bore the sin of many. He makes intercession for the transgressions. We're beginning to see a hint of that in Jesus in Gethsemane. 
Yes, he did so in anguish, but he did so willingly. Not my will, but yours be done. Yes, it was sorrowful to the point of death, but he was obedient. And his obedience is ours through faith. In the garden, he wasn't just looking to bear their sins, but he was looking to be their righteousness. In the garden, Jesus wasn't just bearing your sins, he was being your righteousness. He was being tested and trusting his soul to God humbly, prayerfully, perfectly, trustingly, worshipfully, passionately. I pray you know that. I pray you know that savingly. I pray you know that when Jesus was in anguish, both in the garden and on the cross. It was anguish for you that he was doing something on a cosmic level. He was paying for your sins, taking your judgment, your punishment. That in the garden and all through his life, he was living righteously. And through faith, we can receive his his forgiveness and receive his righteousness. But isn't Jesus an example here, you might ask? Isn't that the point of the passage? Example? Is Jesus an example for us in Gethsemane? Well, sure, he almost always is an example for us. But that's not the first or the main point of this passage. You have to first see him being righteous for you interceding for you, sacrificing himself for you before you can ever see anything of example from Jesus here. Yes, the garden is an example in many, many ways. It's an example for Christians facing temptation. And it's an example for how to pray and how to be persistent in prayer and to put that all-important, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done in there. It's a great example on submission to God's will and the mystery of God's providence, the mystery of his sovereign plan. It's a great passage to go to when we don't know what he's up to, when we don't feel like he hears, when we feel forsaken. Yes, yes, yes. But we don't start there. We can't run there too quickly Because Gethsemane is not at first trying to get us to pray better, pray longer, not go to sleep so quickly. It's getting us to see Jesus. All of his comforts were removed so that we'd know and experience the God of all comfort. He bore God's wrath so that we would bear none of it. He took our judgment so that we would never be left or forsaken He was all alone so we would never be left or forsaken. He was betrayed so that we would be accepted. He was in anguish in what laid before him so that we would never have to fear death. He drank the cup of God's anger so that we would drink the cup of salvation. Yes, there is another cup. There's another cup. We celebrate it tonight. Jesus instituted this right before he went and prayed about the cup of God's wrath. He taught his disciples about the cup of the new covenant. 
He took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance for me. And then Paul tells us, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This meal in symbolic form proclaims the Lord's death to us. It shouts our hope to us. Oh, it's quiet. It's a quiet meal. It's a subtle symbol. But it's rich. It's loaded with meaning. It's powerful to our souls. In essence, it's the battle of the Christian life. One to not forget. To remember, remember, remember. Remember me. Remember the Lord's death until he comes. Remember what you've been saved from. Remember that the gospel is you've been saved by God, actually from God. Jesus bore that wrath upon the tree that we might be free and free indeed.